30, we'll do, you'll never guess, Mary. Yeah, I knew you couldn't guess. So um, we want to invite you to come to our Christmas Eve services as well. As I said, those will be at 2 and 3.30. Uh, of course, the Christmas Eve service is shorter uh, than the normal service, kid-friendly, um, uh, and we'll, we'll do the candlelight thing at the end. Um, so uh, you can bring your kids. There'll be candy for them and coloring books, and I'll, I'll tell a story in the rocking chair like Santa Claus, all kinds of stuff. Um, but before we uh, get into that, uh, as we're going along, uh, on Christmas Eve, we always take up an offering. Uh, and uh, the offering that we take up on Christmas Eve is the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. If you didn't grow up in a Baptist church, you don't know who that is. Uh, and so uh, Lottie Moon was, an, was a missionary that went to China about a hundred and something years ago. And uh, each year we take up an offering. It's in her name, uh, but all of it goes to international missions. So whenever we take up the offering on Christmas Eve, none of that will go to the church. Uh, and all of it, 100%, goes to Lottie Moon. And all of that money that goes to Lottie Moon goes to missions. And so I thought, uh, in the spirit of even kind of carrying along the, the, the Christmas sermon series that we're doing, where we're look, highlighting different women, I thought I would also continue that same vein and highlight the work of Lottie Moon. And so last week I told a little bit about Lottie Moon uh, and talked about her missionary, her pre-missionary life before she came to know Christ and beginning of her mission work. And now I'm going to continue, and today we'll talk about her mission and her vision. Uh, it says this, whenever she set sail for China, Lottie Moon was 32 years old. She had <clears throat> turned down a marriage proposal and left her job, home and family, to, to follow God's lead. Now, uh, this was around 1860 or so. Um, she turned down the marriage proposal, and her path wasn't typical for an educated woman from a wealthy Southern family. God had gripped her uh, with uh, the Chinese people's need for a savior. For 39 years, Lottie labored chiefly uh, in these two cities, Ting Chow and Ping Tu. People feared and rejected her, but she refused to leave, and the aroma of fresh-baked cookies drew people to her house each day. She adopted traditional Chinese dress and she learned Chinese, the China's language and customs. Lottie didn't just serve the people of China. She identified with them. Many eventually accepted her, and some even accepted Jesus. Uh, her vision was Lottie wrote letters detailing China's hunger for truth and the struggle of so few missionaries taking the gospel to the 472 Chinese in her day. She also shared the urgent need for more workers and for Southern Baptists to support through prayer and through giving. She once wrote to the then-called Foreign Mission Board, which is now called the International Mission Board, please say to the new missionaries that are coming, uh, they're coming to a life of hardship, responsibility, and constant self-denial. Disease, uh, next paragraph, disease and turmoil and lack of co-workers uh, threatened to undo Lottie's work, but she gave herself completely to God helping lay the foundation of what would become the modern Chinese church, one of the fastest-growing Christian movements in the world. Uh, by the way, uh, when they went to church this, their, for their Sunday, I and mean, they're ahead of us, uh, but when they went to church this Sunday in China today, there were people um, waiting for them that worked for the government, not letting them go into their... That's today, this Sunday. Uh, the, the underground church is not able to go to church today because they were being stopped uh, by the government and being arrested. Uh, my wife was just telling me this morning, uh, one of my friends that I went to Camp McCall with, um, who knows missionaries there, uh, they're stopping, the Chinese government is trying to stop the underground church today, this Sunday. Of course, they're ahead of us. Uh, so the work that's even going on is still 
trying to be stopped. And it says, uh, but her legacy lives on. And after today, when gifts aren't growing as quickly as the numbers of workers God is calling to the field, her call for sacrificial giving rings more with urgency than ever. Uh, Lottie frequently sends letters. Uh, These are some of her letters. Lottie frequently sent letters back home detailing the Chinese culture, missionary life, and the physical and spiritual needs of the Chinese people. Additionally, she challenged Southern Baptists to go to China or give so that others could go. By 1888, Southern Baptist women had organized and helped collect $3,315 to send to workers in China. And she once wrote, Why should we not do something that will prove that we are really in earnest in claiming to be followers of him who, though he was rich for our sake, became poor? She wrote that in September of 1887. And so the offering, which will take up, as I said, Christmas Eve in 1918, the Women's Missionary Union or the WMU, that's just a a Southern Baptist kind of uh, organization, named the annual Christmas offering for international missions after Lottie Moon, the woman who had urged them to start it, which is what we'll be taking up, as I said, next Monday at Christmas Eve. So uh, that's some background information over the last couple of weeks about Lottie Moon, uh, so that whenever you come, you kind of know who Lottie Moon is. Uh, and each week, we'll, every year at Christmas Eve, we take up that offering. And so we just want you to know who that is. So uh, I'm going to uh, pray, and then we're going to jump into Genesis. Uh, the main chapter we'll be in will be chapter 21. Uh, It'll take us a few minutes to get there uh, because uh, Sarah has a lot of narrative that gets us to chapter 21. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll look at the text together. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this time of year that reminds us of our coming Savior. Uh, And we thank you for all the people before Jesus that point us to the coming Christ so that every year when we uh, come into the month of December, we can think about Um, the coming Savior, the one who has come to save us from our sins. Uh, And so we we pray that as we look at these Old Testament stories, as they point us to Christ, that our hearts would be uh, inflamed for Christ, that we would not take it for granted every year, that we get to enjoy this amazing time where we think on the Messiah, the coming Messiah that's been promised from old, that would come and save us from our sins. Be with us now as we look at this, this text as we look at the life of Sarah and Abraham <clears throat> and uh, the gracious, faithful God that you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, this sermon series is called Carry the Promise, uh, and it really has kind of a double meaning. Uh, these women that we're looking at literally carry the promise uh, for nine months until they give birth to the promise. Um, and we also, with us, as, after we become Christians, As believers, we carry the promise in us. We carry the good news in our hearts, and we're able to go and share this good news with other people. So as we're looking at the point of Genesis 21 is what we'll be looking at. The point of the narrative today is that we should rejoice in God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise by the miraculous giving to Sarah of this uh, baby Isaac. And so my sermon goal today is to encourage us as the church to rejoice in God's faithfulness. That at Christmas time, we want to rejoice in God's faithfulness that he would give us Christ because he carried the promise forward through Sarah and eventually to the church by giving us Jesus. So first, before we do that, 
what are some things that we can know about Sarah? Uh, we, we looked at that last week. What are some things that we can know about Eve? And uh, what are some things that maybe we can know about Sarah that maybe we don't know? Um, Sarah means princess, either in the first name Sarai or the given name that when God changed it, it means princess. Uh, but the first thing that we can know comes from chapter 11, verse 30. Chapter 11, verse 30. Uh, <clears throat> after the Tower of Babel, they start some of the descendants and they, they go through the, the descendants. And when they get to Sarah at verse 30, now they said, now Sarai was barren and she had no child. Now we don't know what was wrong medically with her, uh, but we do know that she was unable to have children. And women that were unable to have children, especially in this particular time period, were some ways outcast because they had no ability to contribute to the next generation growing. So um, she lived uh, until age 90 as a woman that was barren. Can you imagine in this particular time period um, where a lot of your identity and value is wrapped in your ability to give birth to the next generation, she was barren. And so it was a, uh, it was a devastating thing for Sarah to uh, be a, a lady that was barren in, uh, in this particular time period. Now, that's the first thing that we know, but there's some more. The second thing that we know is that she was part of the great Abrahamic promise that was made in chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3. And just to try to, I've tried to, many times as we've gone through the Old Testament, I've tried to emphasize the unbelievable uh, turn in the text in chapter 12, uh, verse 1, that, that, that happens in verse 12. Verse one, or chapter 12, verse 1. So um, up until this point, all there are is just a bunch of people. And they're all pretty sinful. And, and there's nothing necessarily great about anybody that's living in, in, in Genesis chapter 12. And all of a sudden, God just chooses out of all the people living on earth to come down and come up to this man, Abram, and said, Abram, all the people here are pagans. Uh, and, and you, you, I'm going to choose you to be the father of all of my people. None of the people that live on the earth are my chosen people, but you are going to live a life of faith following me. And so from you, you're going to be the very beginning. None of these other people on earth are going to get to be that. But starting with you, we're going to begin this kind of growing family. And everybody that, that comes from you will be known as the Israelites, the people of God. All the other people that live on the earth after that, they won't be. But starting with you, coming forward, all the people that are in your line and in your lineage, they are going to be a part of the great Abrahamic promise, the people of God, which for us, since we're Gentiles, we've been engrafted in as Gentiles into Israel, as the New Testament says. And so we're a part of that as well um, because of Jesus Christ. But this, this turn or this part of the text in chapter 12, verse 1, 3 is amazing. One, one commentator says, these verses make a pivotal point in Genesis and in the history of redemption as God begins to establish a covenant people for himself in the fulfillment of the promise he made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium that we looked at last week, the first gospel. The progress of God's redemptive plan is evident in his setting Abraham apart from every other man in the entire world uh, and making Israel into a great nation. It eventually climaxes in the person and work of Jesus, who is the true seed of Abraham that's told us to us in Galatians 3.16, who brings salvation to the entire world. Uh, the call to Abraham, and thus also Sarah, is passed on to the new, next two patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, and the uh, nation will be formed of Jacob's 12 sons. And so when we come to chapter 12, 
verses 1 and 3, something that we can know about Sarah. The first thing we know is from 11.30 she was barren. The next thing we know is that Sarah gets to be a part of this great Abrahamic promise in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, which is to make of you a great nation, to bless and make their name great, and in them all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You can see it, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here it is. Here's this promise to Abram. Now, he makes this promise to Abram. Uh, and I don't think that Abram tells Sarah the promise. Uh, but Sarah is nevertheless a part of it because she is Abram's wife. Chapter uh, 12, verse 2. And I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, let me, let me amend what I just said. I think that he tells Sarah, but I don't think that they understand that Sarah is going to be the one that's going to be the, the, the one that gives birth to the next child. I think that they just assume, well, since she's barren, that's true, and we'll just have to figure it out how it's going to happen. Uh, but nevertheless, this great, amazing promise is made to them. And every nation in the Old Testament and all, the, all throughout, who chooses uh, to bless or honor Israel will be blessed. And every nation that chooses to dishonor Israel will be cursed by God. And so this is an amazing blessing that's being given to Abraham. And Sarah is a part of that because she's Abraham's, <clears throat> she's Abraham's wife. Uh, lastly, we also see the gospel in Genesis 12, 3, when it says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a continuation of the Proto-Evangelium in chapter 315, where it says, In you, uh, Abram, all the families of the Lord shall be blessed, which means eventually your seed will come and Jesus Christ will be the Messiah. And in that, in, in Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah, all the families of the earth shall be blessed because we who are believers in Christ will become believers uh, we'll be saved from our sins because we have followed Christ. So this is a, uh, a gospel message as well that's given. That's the second thing. The third thing that we can know about Sarah, among lots of stuff that we could name, is in Genesis chapter 17 as well. Now this, uh, we, we read the Abrahamic promise. There's also a specific promise that's, um, that's made to Sarah. Now, this promise that's made to Sarah is given to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 16, you can see the specific promise that's given to uh, Sarah. But if you look at 15, you see that it's made to, God tells it to Abraham, and, but it's really a specific promise for Sarah. Verse 17, 15, And God said to Abra Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, which is just a derivative, again, of princess. And here, here's this promise, verse 16. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her, and I will bless her, and she shall become nations. King of pe peoples shall come from her. Now, I don't think that he told her that. I don't think that he said, by the way, you're going to have the son. Uh, it's going to come from you because she was barren, which is why she makes the schemes, etc. So I'll get to that in a second. But nevertheless, here's the third thing we know about Sarah is that this amazing promise is, is made about her, it's given to Abraham that 
Kings will actually come from her. It says that in 17.6. When he's talking to Abraham, if you look at 17.6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. That's the king of kings in 17.6 that's being told to us. Um, and so she's going to be get, uh, Sarah's going to get to be used. This barren lady uh, is going to be get to be used for the creation mandate. Now we talked about this last week in Genesis 1.28 where they're told, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This barren lady, Sarah, is going to get to be used by God to uh, be a part of the creation mandate of Genesis 1.28 to fill the earth. The same thing they told Adam and Eve. Sarah is going to get to be a part of it. This means that God himself tells uh, Abram, but nevertheless makes this promise to Sarah, his princess, that he himself is going to overcome her barrenness. He himself is going to overcome it. It gets even better than that. And provide for her and Abraham a son. And from that son, the king of all kings, Jesus Christ, will come from him, their son Isaac. That's an amazing promise that's given to Sarah. You are barren, but I will overcome your, my princess, I will overcome your barrenness. And not only will I give you a baby, by the way, at age 90, (laughs) which is amazing to overcome barrenness at age 90. The king of all kings will come from your son, Isaac. This is a beautiful promise that's made to her. We should be amazed by that. Absolutely amazed by that. Now, I have a confession. I watch This Is Us. I don't know if you watch it. Maybe you're rolling your eyes at me. Maybe you're judging me, but I do watch it. Um, my wife and I, we might be a shore two behind here and there, but we watch it. We need to know what's going on with Jack and Rebecca and Randall and Kate and Kevin or whatever all their names are. It, Toby's hilarious. He's probably the funniest guy there. Anyway, here's my point um, is uh, secularly speaking, secularly speaking, Jack is like the ideal dad in the world, right? He, secularly speaking, he doesn't take him to church. So he's not, he's not the ideal Christian dad. He's not, but secularly speaking, he is. Uh, of course, on the show, this man, uh, whatever his name is, I don't know his name, Jack, I'll just call him Jack, he's just saying lines, right? And the, the show portrays him as an amazing dad that never takes being a dad for granted. I can remember one conversation last season that he's having with this other guy. This other guy is kind of talking about how he has to, he can't wait for his kids to move out the house so they can finally have the kids out. And the Jack, the, the Jack dad character says something like this, like, uh, I don't want to speed up time. I want to slow down time so that I can be with my kids more so that I can love them and appreciate the joy of being their dad. And that, that, like, that always has hit me. Uh, even in my own life, I want to slow down time so that I can really enjoy it. But my point is this. Uh, in the conversation, it seems uh, that the other dad is taking it for granted or even thinking that being a dad is a burden, just taking it for granted, like, let's, let's make it go. The same is true for us in regard to being the church. Same can be true for us in regard to being the church, that we can take it for granted that we get to be a part of the church, the people of God, or even worse, we can think it's a burden to actually have to be a part of a family of group of people where we do life with each other and hang out with each other. And so uh, all too often, Israel fails to appreciate the fact that they, this miracle that they're part of the covenant family of God. And also often the church, we can fail to appreciate that we are part of the miracle of being God's covenant people. 
And so today, as we're looking at this text, one of the goals is for us to not do that, not take it for granted. There are some amazing gifts that we get to be a part of as being the family of God, not just in the local, but being a part of the church universal that we should never, ever, ever, ever grow weary of. We should never, ever take it for granted. But instead, we should enjoy the fact that we get the honor of praising God, uh, celebrating each year the miracle of Christ's birth, etc. And the goal of this sermon is to encourage us to never take it for granted that we're the church or moreover ever think that it's a burden. Now, we're going to get to Genesis chapter 21, but what I want to do here is read some, some major narrative pieces from Genesis 12 to 20 that bring us along in the story. So when we get to chapter 21, my goal is to, to have built the tension up as much as possible, that we're all on the edge of our seats wondering, is Sarah ever going to get to have this baby? Now, you already know she is. But nevertheless, act like you don't, and let's all let the tension build so that when we get to the end of chapter 20, we're just like on the edge of our seats like, is she going to do it? Is God going to be faithful? Oh, the suspense. Let's find out. So let's start with um, starting uh, with a couple things. Number one, I want to look at Genesis 11. Again, we've already talked about it, but uh, in Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 27, we see this. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nair, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of the kindred in Ur, the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nair took wives. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nair's wife was Milcah. Now, uh, Abraham and Sarah were also brother and sister. It's not that bad because they just had the same dad. They didn't have the same mom. So since they had the same mom, uh, it, they can get married. Um, so I don't know why. Uh, in the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ixah. And then they're sure to tell us, right before the Abrahamic covenant is given to us, in chapter 12, verse 1, the writer wants us to feel the tension. Now, Sarah was barren. She had no child. This is before the Abrahamic covenant that's given to us in chapter 12. So we, we have been hit with this massive piece of information. Sarah is completely barren. Abraham's married to Sarah and only Sarah. And then we get into chapter 12 to this amazing promise. And so as the reader, we would think to ourselves, how is this going to happen? So we see that Sarah is barren. And then we get to one of the first kind of major pieces is God says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you. And I'll make you a great nation. This is what he says to Abraham. Knowing that Sarah is barren. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He even repeats this in chapter 13, verse 16. Chapter 13, 16, it says this. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to count dust, <clears throat> but it's everywhere, Right? I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if no one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also will be counted. Now, he tells this to someone who's only married to one woman who's barren. So he makes this great promise to him. And so we can just start feeling the suspense like, oh my goodness, how's this going to happen? How's this going to happen? Now, after many years some 20-something years, we're going to get to the next narrative plot. Uh, brings us to chapter 15, 
starting at verse 1. After uh, 15, verse 1, what we're going to see here is after many years of waiting, Abram is going to complain to God. We're getting old. You're going to have so many children that it's like dust on the earth. Like there's so many. Sarah's still barren. You made this promise, God. What's going on? Chapter 15, verse 1. Here's after many years of waiting, Abram complains. After these things, the word of the God came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your reward will be very great. But Abram said to the Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house, Eliezer, is of and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the, the, word, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and the number of the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said, So shall be your offspring. Now this is another time here, just like 1316, where he said, there's going to be so many of your offspring, you can't even count them. And what does Abram do? This is, this is why when you look at Romans chapter 4 or Hebrews chapter 12, Abram is commended for his faith constantly when he says this, and he believed the Lord Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram hears that and he says, okay, God, I believe you. And so that faith, this is all pre-law, that faith is counted to him as righteousness. So Abram complains, but God assures him that it'll happen. And whenever God assures him that it'll happen, uh, Abram believes God. That's the, uh, the second narrative point. Now, that brings us to chapter 16, verse 1. So we see the third narrative point where uh, Sarah comes up with an alternative plan to God's. She comes up with an alternative plan in chapter, six, chapter 16, verse 1. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. That's because we know in 1130 she was barren. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, this is because, uh, this is not right. This is wrong to do. But they want so desperately for God's promise to happen they're not willing to wait on God's timing. And so they're going to take it all into their own hands and try to force it instead of waiting on God's timing. This is, this is uh, wrong. You should never want to uh, push ahead and try to make God's plan happen without it happening his timing. And that's what they do. Verse 2, And Sarah said to him, Behold, now the Lord is preventing from having my children. Go into my servant, and it may be that I shall attain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Wrong. So after Abram had lived in the land 10 years of Canaan, Sarah, uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, his, her servant, and gave her to Abram, <coughs> her husband, as a wife. And he went to her and to Hagar, and she conceived. When she saw that she conceived, she looked content, with contempt at the mistress. Uh, and Sarah said to him, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to, to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in, uh, is in your power. Do as you please. And Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled. But nevertheless, uh, we see Sarah comes up with this alternative plan, and they have a child. Uh, we know that this child's name is Ishmael. Uh, so that's the third narrative plot where they, they finally just have kind of thought to themselves, well, we're going we're gonna to take it into our own hands 
And if we take it in our own hands, uh, Hagar will have the child for us. And then that finally will be the, 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 the promise of chapter 12, chapter 16, these great promises that you're, you're going to have. I'm sorry, chapter uh, 13. So now we're getting into the next narrative plot. They take it in their own hands. They come up with their alternative plan. As we get into chapter 17, uh, where I want to read, what we're going to see here is that it seems as though uh, that Abraham and Sarah have finally accepted the idea that Ishmael is the promised son. That they've resigned themselves to say, in our, in our summation, it seems that Ishmael is going to be the promised son. Chapter 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for your Sarah, as for, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah uh, shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give a son by her. Now, this is the promise made to Sarah, which we've already talked about. But in just a second, we're going to see Abraham's already convinced that it's Ishmael. And therefore, Sarah must also be convinced that it's Ishmael. Uh, and he says, uh, verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nation." She shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. Now, they're thinking to themselves, he's thinking to himself, oh man, we've already done this other thing where we took, we took it into our own hands. <laughs> Why is that? Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Or can't Ishmael just be... The son of the promise. So it seems if he's going to say that before this conversation that they've already resigned themselves that Ishmael is the son of the promise. That promise that you made to us, the great Abrahamic promise, a covenant in chapter 12, Ishmael must be the fulfillment of all that. They've resigned themselves to it. And God says to him, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear your son and you shall call his name Isaac, which means he laughs. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And so here we see that they have accepted the idea that Ishmael was going to be the promised son, but God comes in and says, no, it's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be Isaac. Uh, and yes, I'm, I'm going to do a miracle. You at 100 and her at 90, that's going to be the case. Now, it doesn't seem that um, whenever we read that in chapter 17, that Abram took that information and reported it to Sarah. Because when we get to chapter 18, when God comes to Sarah and tells her that she's going to have a baby, she laughs. And the way that she laughs and the way that she conducts herself makes it sound like she's hearing this for the very first time. And so she's already accepted it, that it must be Ishmael. So uh, Yahweh returns again, and starting at 18, verse 9, 18, verse 9, we see that uh, Yahweh, the Lord, returns again and repeats the promise that he's been saying the whole time. And Sarah is going to laugh at this, inferring disbelief. Now, we've already seen Abram laugh at it in disbelief, saying, that's ridiculous, I'm 100, she's 90. That's not gonna happen. She's gonna say something similar. Starting at 18, verse nine, <clears throat> they said to him, where's your wife, Sarah? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Now, the Bible and the narrator, Moses, who wrote this, is trying to make sure we understand that they're old. <laughs> they want us to know over and over that they're really old and that you don't have babies at 90 because they're so old. And then this is what Sarah says. She's rather vulgar. Um, so uh, the way, let's see, Sarah was listening at the tent door. Now Sarah, 
and Abraham, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah, meaning she wasn't able to have children anymore, right? She had long way gone through menopause. And then what does Sarah say? Sarah laughed to herself saying, and this is vulgar. After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Uh, I didn't even want to read the commentaries because I didn't want to know what the 90-year-old woman was saying there, but I did, and it's what we think it is. So anyway, let's talk, about, let's talk about it. First is Sarah laughs, and from this, when she laughs, we can infer that this is the first hearing of the promise that she's the one that's going to give birth to the baby Isaac. This is the first hearing. She's just had accepted it, that it was going to be Hagar and Ishmael. And here she's laughing, saying that this is not going, as we can infer, this is her first hearing. She's not believing that it's going to be her. Uh, why has Abraham not told her? Uh, we don't know why that's happened, but we can infer that he has not told her that the son's actually going to come from her, not Hagar, not Ishmael. And so, as I said, Sarah's language is crude with the rest of the voice. But the point that she's trying to say is, from her crude statement, is that she's even saying, I'm really old. <laughs> and 90-year-old women don't give birth. Um, but what's more important is not her crude statement, but rather God's answer in verse 13 and following. The Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child that I am old? And here it is. Is anything too, our ESV says, hard, um, wonderful. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? In other words, is there anything in the world that Yahweh can't do? Name it. There isn't. Is anything too wonderful? Which is the more important point for us uh, to have. Uh-oh, I just lost my, I backed out of there. There we go. Um, so, there's nothing uh, that God can't do. As Paul tells us later on in Romans chapter 4, I was going to read the entire time, but I can't, uh, the entire section, but I can't uh, because of time. I was going to, if you're in Romans 4, I was going to read from Romans 4, 13 all the way to 25. I'm not going to do that. Um, but what I want you to see is really um, in verse 19, uh, 18 through 20, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as uh, he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Uh, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. So Paul is even making us understand that they were, I mean, Abraham was so old that he was as good as dead <laughs> before he becomes a dad. That's mega old. I feel old sometimes where I can't keep up with the kids in the yard. He's as good as dead whenever she considered the bareness of Sarah's womb. No no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. If you want to read the whole section, you could read 13 through 25. I just read those particular verses. But what we can see here is that, um, is anything too wonderful for God? Sarah is, is really old and Abraham is as good as dead. So we can just feel the tension. Like, what about this great promise you made in Genesis 12? it's out of the realm of any kind of possibility that you're going to actually fulfill that promise, God, and have a son through, through Sarah. It just, it just seems totally improbable that it's going to happen. There's no way. Well, um, he comes in, he repeats the promise to him there. And then finally, uh, we get to something that's even more difficult, right? We get to chapter 20, uh, 
And just when we think it couldn't get any more impossible for this promise to come to fruition, you get to chapter 20 and it gets even worse. So they go there and they're sojourning and they go into the territory of the Najeb. I'm at chapter 20, verse 1. Um, and he lived there between Kadesh and Shur and he sojourned there in Gerar. And Abraham said of, uh, of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister as they were sojourning. They kind of had this deal that whenever they're sojourning to the promised land, if they ever come up to somebody and says, who's this? He would just say, well, she's my sister. And he's, he's not really lying. She is. But that's just so that if he says she's my wife, then they would usually just kind of kill him and take her. And it wanted this. So she's just my sister. Uh, he's going to explain this in a second. And so Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah because he thought that Sarah was Abraham's uh, sister, not wife. But God came to Abimelech. Now, he, he, Abimelech takes Sarah to be a part of his harem. Uh, I'll address the elephant in the room, which is why is it that uh, Abimelech wants to bring a 90-year-old woman into his harem? <laughs> I don't understand that. I, the elephant in the room cannot be answered. I, uh, I don't get it. I don't understand why he is attracted to 90-year-old women for harems. But nevertheless, here's what happens. But God came to Abimelech in a, in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she's a man's wife. Now, Abimelech didn't know this. He just thought it was a sister. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an, uh, an innocent people? Did he not say himself that she's my sister? <clears throat> and he herself said, She's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. I didn't know. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that, you, uh, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose and gave her over. So we see like the tension's building. Is it going to happen? Is it finally going to happen? So Sarah, uh, Abraham has passed Sarah off as his, as his sister. The, the tension's building. Are they ever going to be able to have this child? And then that finally brings us to chapter 21, which is what we want to look at. God fulfills the promise. God fulfills the promise. So as we're going into chapter 21, you can read verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abram was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And he said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah, and she said, sorry, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children at age 90? Yet I have borne a son to him in his old age. So we finally get to 21. If I just started at 21, we wouldn't have felt like the weight and the tension and all the, the, the weaving that the narrator or the writer is trying to get us to to 21 to see, wow, this is absolutely amazing what we've gotten to. God fulfills his promise here. Uh, so let's go back and look at verses 1 through 7 as deeply as we can. And there's, this will be, there will actually be some points on the screen now. But uh, we see in chapter uh, one, 21 verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah. Visited is the verb pakad in the Hebrew. And it means the Lord deals with Sarah or the Lord is gracious to Sarah. This, this verb is highlighting for us God's attentive care and concern, and concern for Sarah. So the Lord deals graciously with Sarah. 
as he, as he had said. And the Lord said to Sarah, um, as, as he did, as he had promised. Calvin, looking at verses one through three, John Calvin says this. There's a great emphasis in the repetition. For he thus retains his readers by laying his hand upon them that they may pause in the consideration of so great a miracle. So the writer's repeating himself for all of us so that we would pause for a second and stop and think, a miracle just happened. A 90-year-old woman just gave birth to a baby. We should stop and just absolutely be floored by that. Y'all, God made a 90-year-old woman give birth because he promised her that you're going to give birth. And if I, have to, if, God's thinking, if I have to do it at 90, I will. And so he just does that. That's absolutely amazing. So lessons or, uh, that from chapter 20 that should evoke rejoicing from us. That's the, uh, the sermon points. You can go ahead and put up the, the first one. The first one is this, as we can see from verses one through three, that God is faithful. God is faithful. As the covenant people of God, we can take this for granted. We can just kind of ho-hum because we've heard that so many times and we've seen God's faithfulness that we don't ever get, get floored by the fact that God is faithful. In this story, God made a 90-year-old woman who had been barren her entire life give birth. God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And the whole Christmas season, every year is designed for us to um, go back into the Old Testament story and think through the, the, the promises of the coming Messiah and celebrate the fact that God was faithful in fulfilling the promise of Genesis 3.15 all the way up until when Christ was born, saying, I'm going to give you a Messiah. Things have been absolutely terrible. We shouldn't take it for granted. And that's what the point of Christmas is, to celebrate that Jesus was given to us and to remember that God is faithful to us. He gave us the promised Messiah. He gave us the promised Messiah. John Selahammer says, the plan not only came about, but more importantly, it happened as it was announced. Thus, the narrative calls attention to God's faithfulness to his word and his careful attention to the details of his plan. And as his church we should never take it for granted. God is faithful. He's faithful to you, and he's always going to be faithful for you, to you. And it's very easy to just kind of let that be something that you've heard and you're, you know that's going to happen. And okay, don't ever take it for granted that God is faithful. The second thing is this. First thing is that God is faithful. The second thing is that God wants us to obey joyfully. He wants us to obey Look at verse three. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, uh, who was born to Sarah, Isaac. Now, if you remember in uh, chapter 17, verse 19, that's what God told him. In 17, 19, God said, no, Sarah, your wife's going to bear, bear a son and you will call his name Isaac, which means uh, he laughs. And so what does Abraham do as soon as he's born? He obeys. He obeys God by naming him Isaac. Moreover, if you look at that, it says, and, uh, verse four, Abraham circumcised his son when he was eight, eight days old. That's also direct obedience from chapter 17, verse 12, when he said, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, uh, whether it's born in your house or born uh, with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. And 
So Abraham, as soon as his son is born, he obeys God with both things. He names his son Isaac, and he circumcises his son on the eighth day. Now, um, he, I, he follows God's instructions exactly. He, he doesn't see it as a task to obey. Instead, he does it. And God wants us to obey. Now, the reason why I put the parenthetical joyfully is because that's the whole point of being a believer in Christ, right? Is that uh, God wants us, just like Abraham, to obey what he tells us. But he doesn't want us to just look at it as some kind of task. Well, I got to obey. I got to always tell the truth. I got to read my Bible and pray and do what God says and be nice to my neighbor and not kick the dog, you know, whatever. Like he wants us to obey, but not like some kind of robot, right? He wants us to obey because of, number one, we can't get over the fact that we have a God that is so faithful to us so good to us, so gracious to us. As he dealt with Sarah generously, he does the same with us. And so we want to, out of response of worship, we want to obey. We should never take it for granted that we get the privilege of obeying the things that God tells us. Now, our obedience doesn't earn us salvation. The law is not given to us uh, to earn salvation. We have the gospel that we're already accepted by God. And so our adherence to the law or our following the commands of God is done out of a response of the fact of the gospel has been given to us, that Jesus Christ died for us, saved us from all of our sins. And so we joyfully obey the things that he does, that he says to us. This is what Abraham does. This is what we should do. The next thing I want you to see a lesson is that um, verse five, when Abraham was 100 years old, when, his son was, uh, when Isaac, his son, was born to him, God delivers miracles. Number three, a lesson is that God delivers miracles. We should never take it for granted that our God, the only one true God, is the only one that's able to uh, actually deliver miracles. I picked deliver as a, as a, yeah, a word that kind of goes with babies, by the way. Um, anyway, I thought that was pretty creative. Anyway, uh, Sidney Gredanus says this, Isaac is indeed a child who could have been called into being Isaac is indeed a child who could have only been called into being by the miraculous power of a faithful Lord. And so God delivers miracles. Now, this, this isn't uh, hocus pocus magic. When I say God delivers miracles, don't think Hogwarts. Like this isn't Harry Potter stuff, right? This is instead the gospel. This is the miraculous word, uh, work of God to save man. Here, he uses a 90-year-old woman who has barren her entire life. The gospel is that he actually uses a virgin to give birth to the miracle birth baby, Jesus Christ, who eventually um, goes to the cross to bear our sins, who's raised three days later, defeats sin, and gives us new life. And so the miracle is that you and I can have new life in Christ, that we're actually like Christ is raised from the dead. We've been raised from the dead. And so God delivers miracles to every single one of us because we have been given new life in Christ. We have been forgiven completely of all of our sins. That is an absolute miracle. We should never take that for granted. That the work of the Spirit to give you new life, to make you into the new man, the kinekatesis, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5, the new creation, is an absolute miracle. It's not a ho-hum, oh yeah, I'm a new creation. God does that all the time. <laughs> no. God delivers miracles. And if you're a believer in Christ, you are a work of being a miracle because you're a new creation in Christ. Don't ever take that for granted. 
The next thing is this, and this is great. I just absolutely love this. Verse six, let's read it real fast. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. She doesn't mean laugh at her, by the way. Um, In verses one through seven, the actual birth narrative of Isaac, Sarah is the only one that's recorded as speaking here. Uh, Abraham's praise, he must have had it, is not recorded. Sarah, his wife's uh, language is the one that's actually recorded from us. I think that's pretty cool. Um, And it's a substantial, though short, a substantial song of praise. This isn't actually a song of praise by Sarah. God has made laughter for me. This laughter is to be intentionally contrasted with the laughter she gives in 1812. If you remember, the vulgar Sarah, uh, whenever he comes to her, he says, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, the way a woman ceased with me, Sarah laughed to herself after I'm worn out. My Lord says, I'm going to have pleasure. Like Sarah laughs in 18.12, and this laughter of 21 is to be intentionally contrasted because 18.12 is the laughter of disobedience and disrespect towards God. But contrastly, chapter 21.6 is the laughter of faith and joy, from disbelief to faith, from disrespect to joy. And so Sarah is praising God here whenever she's in verse six, whenever she's doing this. So number four, we must praise God because of his faithfulness. The next lesson is that we should praise God. We should want to sing praise, praises to, to God because he is uh, so faithful. As I said, Isaac's name means he laughs, which means every time she says the name Isaac, which by the way, if you have children, you're going to say your children's names all the time. Like Aiden, stop. Aiden, don't do that. Karis, shh. McCallum, calm down. Like, like you're going to say their names over and 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 over. Every time she says, Isaac, Isaac, stop. Isaac, be quiet. Isaac, she has to say, he laughs, stop. He laughs, don't do that. He laughs, quit jumping in the river. He laughs, don't touch the snake. Like, so every time she says his name, right? Every time she says his name, she is reminded of the fact that God changed her from a laughter of disbelief to a laughter of faith. Every time she says his name. That's pretty amazing. And so... Uh, She's reminded over and over for the entire time that she has Isaac that she must praise him. Um, And this is uh, the first time she laughed. She's told, is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now, it depends on obviously how big of a God Sarah's God is, but Yahweh is absolutely big. And so Sarah here finds out that there is nothing too wonderful for God, that he can make a 90-year-old woman give birth to a baby. And so she praises God for it. As Sidney Grudanus says, he who created the universe with his word is able to fulfill the promise no matter how impossible it seems. Israel and the church owe their existence. We owe their existence to the Lord's faithfulness and miraculously causing Isaac into existence through Sarah so many generations earlier. We are sitting in this room right now because a 90-year-old woman named Sarah gave birth to Isaac. We wouldn't be here if that wouldn't have happened. Um, so when Israel, after this, always hears this story, they're expected to laugh, but in rejoicing laugh. They rejoice in the Lord's faithfulness, and they give him praise, and so are we. And so if number five told us that God delivers miracles, 
And number six told us that we should pray. I'm sorry. Number three said God delivers miracles in verse five. Number four tells us that we should praise him for his faithfulness. God delivers miracles. And so we are also to, number five, believe in miracles. Number five, we should believe in miracles. You can see it in verse seven. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. A 90-year-old nursing mother is nursing a child and recognizes this miracle. She recognized it by saying, who would have said that, that Abraham would have a child at this old age? What most think is absolutely impossible, rationally, would think this is absolutely impossible. God makes the impossible possible, which means believe in miracles. Believe that what seems impossible to you can be impossible. During this Christmas season, that lost uncle or father or sister, which there's no way that they'll ever become a believer in Christ. God made a 90-year-old woman give birth who was barren her entire life. It's not like she had a baby and then she stopped having them and then she had one. She had never had one. God is in the business of miracles, so believe it. Pray for it. Petition God over and over for the salvation of that person and believe that he can do it. What most people think is impossible is impossible, is possible with God. So let's conclude this way. Um, Let's conclude with the gospel. Sarah's and contrasting Sarah and Mary. And hopefully it should for all of us evoke worship in our hearts as we hear this. Sarah's miraculous conception Uh, brings the promised Isaac, which brings the laughter of faith. Mary's miraculous conception brings the promised Jesus, which brings salvation to all who have faith. Sarah's conception was a miracle. Mary's conception was an even greater miracle that gives us salvation. Sarah's laugh causes God to ask, is anything too wonderful for God? Mary's actual birth gives birth to the wonderful. Now, in that verse, uh, Isaiah 9, 6, we hear wonderful counselor. There's a comma there. Wonderful counselor. It's not wonderful counselor. He's wonderful. So when we hear Sarah is asked, is anything too wonderful for God? Mary actually gives birth to the wonderful, the mighty God, the counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. At Isaac's birth, Abraham and Sarah rejoice in God. Just those two. At Jesus' birth, the shepherds and all the angels Together, rejoice and sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Isaac was later brought to be sacrificed by his dad, but there was a ram instead. Jesus was sent by his father to be sacrificed, but there was no substitute. He was the lamb of God that was sent to be slain. Sarah sings a song of praise. God has made a laughter for me. Mary sings a song of praise. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name and mercy And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the riches he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. 
This is Mary's song of praise. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this amazing story of faithfulness through Isaac, through Sarah, by giving Isaac her, uh, her son. And so, Lord, we, uh, we pray that as we think on these great things and this good news, that you, uh, through Isaac, eventually gave us Jesus. 